It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Leela Randall, and welcome to Bring It On, a recent top award-winning program celebrating over 12 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. And happy Monday, everyone. I'm Cornelius Wright, and this past Friday, Bring It On received yet another first-place distinction from the Society of Professional Journalists Best in Indiana Awards. Our broadcast entitled, A Conversation on Positive Community Inter Interactions with Indiana State Police, was recognized under the Radio Public Affairs category. Congratulations, team. On behalf of the entire Bring It On team, but in particular the efforts of William Hosea for that broadcast, Armita Myers, and our engineering dynamic duel of Jim Thrasher and Floyd Hobson, and of course, WFHB Community Radio Station, it was an honor that we received yet another top award. In today's broadcast, you'll also hear our perspective on what's relevant in the African-American world of news and local events of interest, all in the next hour on Bring It On. But first, former Bring It On Politics 101 correspondent Khalil Gibran Muhammad is professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard Kennedy School and a Suzanne Young Murray professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies. He is a former director of the Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture, a division of the New York Public Library, and the world's leading library and archive of global black history. Before leading the Schoenberg Center, Khalil was an associate professor at Indiana University. Khalil's scholarship and teaching examines the broad interaction of race, democracy, inequality, and criminal justice in in modern U.S. history. He is a contributor to the 2014 National Research Council study, The Growth of Incarceration in the United States, Exploring Causes and Consequences, and is the author of The Condemnation of Blacks, Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America, which won a 2011 John Hope Franklin Best Book Award in the American Studies. Much of his work has been featured in a number of national print and broadcast media outlets, including the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Washington Post, the National Public Radio, Myers and Company, MSNBC, and C-SPAN. He has appeared in a number of feature-length documentaries, including Slave by a number, Another Name in 2012 and the Oscar-nominated 13th in 2016. He joins us by phone this evening. Joining William Hosea for an interview with Dr. Muhammad conducted earlier this afternoon is our newest Bring It On contributor, Roberta, Roberta Radovich. Here now is that interview. Dr. Muhammad, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you so much for having me. And how are you today? It's been a long time since we uh, spoke with you. Yes, well, I've been gone from Bloomington just shy of six months. and I'm sorry, I've been gone just shy of six years. I happened to visit recently, and, and so uh, it's a place that will always be uh, near and dear to my heart. Okay, so can you bring us up to date on what uh, Dr. Muhammad has been working on as of late? Well, I recently joined the faculty at the Harvard Kennedy School as a professor of race, uh, history, and public policy. 
And that uh, position comes after serving five years as the director of the New York Public Library's Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Greetings, Dr. Mohammed. We're so glad to have you on the line with us today. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great, and I'm so happy to uh, to have a chance to be with you, uh, my good friend, uh, on the show. Um, Bloomington misses you, particularly in the times that we find ourselves in. Well, I, I would prefer to be there uh, in happier times. So I, I appreciate the sentiment, and, uh, you know, I, unfortunately we all have a lot more work to do. Yeah, you. I think your um, affection for Bloomington and um, your critical insight helps us calibrate and find our footing <laughs> um, in the community that you've, you have here. So we really appreciate, even if you're afar, we're watching what you have to say about these times pretty closely. Sure. Well, I owe a great debt uh, to Bloomington, to, uh, to the community there, and to uh, the university and all of my colleagues and friends there because, uh, you know, I honed my uh, skills there and uh, advanced my own learning um, on the issues that I care deeply about. And so in, in some ways, I'm able to take uh, Bloomington uh, to the world. So mm. that's kind of cool. So, Dr. Muhammad, uh, I'd like to ask you a question about one of the articles uh, that you wrote. And I think it was recent, uh, titled No Racial Barrier Left to Break Except All of Them. Now, the, the title seems to suggest that we have to start the fight for civil rights all over again. And if, if that's the case, are we facing an even more dangerous enemy? Oh, wow. Well, really uh, powerfully put. Well, the article actually makes a slightly different claim, uh, though the suggestion of Trump, uh, I think, is, is right on. So let me say that the first thing is I, I wanted to take stock of what we've learned in two generations after the civil rights movement, uh, the classic movement between 54 and 65, and to make a case for something that I call post-assimilation America. And what I mean by that is uh, we spent five decades building capacity to move black first. Uh, African-American pioneers into every conceivable institution and every position of power uh, that exists, including the most powerful one, the presidency. And the way that I understand where we are now in light of this uh, half-century of history is that simply being a first or pioneer or being in a position of power, which was very much the keynote, uh, the currency of assimilation, of diversity and inclusion, which we hear so much about these days. And I think we've seen the limits of that effort. Uh, we need to work a lot harder on changing institutional cultures and not simply breaking barriers of entry. And so that's what the point of the piece was. Uh, I think I didn't anticipate uh, Trump when I first conceived that piece. Okay. And so I think the stakes are, are, are much higher, uh, given what we've learned and the work that we have remaining. So we hear um, changing institutional cultures uh, so many times. And it's almost kind of, uh, you know, when, when I think, at least for myself, when I hear people say it now, it, it's kind of hollow. So how would you um, reemphasize the need to change institutional culture? Great question. At this point. 
So, so the first thing is a restatement of the first answer, uh, albeit briefly, which is that a lot of what that meant until quite recently, as far as I'm concerned, is let's hire an exceptional black person as the first to run this organization, whether that's in the private sector or the public sector or in higher education. And that model continues to this day. We're still keeping track of how many black or brown or Asian people uh, get to ascend to the highest levels of these various institutions, as if that is sufficient to changing institutional culture. And it's not. Uh, let me take, give you one example. Uh, we've had hundreds of police chiefs and mayors across this country, and yet issues of criminal justice, which are most important uh, to my research, have not moved significantly in the half century when uh, black people for the first time became mayors and police chiefs. So it's not enough to just say, look, we've appointed the first black this or that. We need to uh, put those position, people in positions of power and then hold them accountable to a set of agreed upon outcomes. So how do we get to different agreed upon outcomes? That's the second part of this moment. I think that in light of uh, so much of the good work that's happened from Ta-Nehisi Coates's uh, Between the World and Me to a resurgence of James Baldwin's voice in Raul Peck's uh, recent film, I Am Not Your Negro, or to the Netflix uh, film uh, by Ava DuVernay, 13th, uh, there's a lot more history that I think we can use in our classrooms, in our boardrooms, in our coffee table conversation to help us truly come to terms with what we have not done well and what we need to do better. And if we can bring that into a new intentional dialogue about what our institutions need to fix and have black and brown and Asian and Latino folks in charge, that's what I'm talking about going forward. That, to me, is a step towards institutional change that I would say we have not practiced yet. Dr. Mohammed, you talked about um, conversations we can have in the classrooms, and I'm really interested in how we touch um, these really complex conversations and draw in, um, I'm going to call them a millennial generation, but how do we really kind of work through these complex historical conversations in a way that makes sense and has some actual um, you know, step-by-step -step action items. I'm I'm going back to thinking about your presentation during a, a men and women of color leadership conference um, many years ago at Indiana University, and um, and I think you gave a talk called "The Price of Success: Post-Racial." You know, what is what is the implications of um, success in leadership in a post-racial and uh, more conservative Black American experience? And I'm gonna make that <laughs> transition from that, this idea that you um, present post-assimilation America. So what is the price of success for our millennial generation um, in a post-assimilation America or a Trump era? Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Sure, for us? yeah. So, that, it, so thank you for remembering that uh, workshop. Uh, I was actually very proud of that, and I met someone at IU on my week uh, visit just this past week, who uh, who I met there, who now works, I believe, in in, in your uh, department or in, in in one of the programs that uh, that you, Roberta, used to to be part of. So, 
part of the context that gave way to uh, the success of uh, President Barack Obama was, I believe, a, an as, uh, ascendance of a notion that the only thing that stood in the way uh, in closing all of the gaps of income and achievement and punishment uh, that we're all too familiar with was simple personal responsibility by people just taking responsibility for their behavior. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly true that there's plenty of uh, opportunity for individual agency and better decision-making for all sorts of individuals in our society. Uh, but the fact remains is some people make uh, choices within very limited confines. And we've been asking black people to make the right choices under duress and under significant constraints uh, since we've been here. Uh, a very long period of time. And so I was uh, suggesting to those uh, undergraduate students what the stakes are for being able to launch themselves from having these uh, four-year degrees uh, into America at a time when they were going to be picked off as, as exceptions to the norm, as mm-hmm. people who proved that the system was working. And there's no better example than one that came up after I did that workshop than the publication of a book by the journalist Alice Coase as he took stock of the success of the Obama presidency and sort of the attitudes of African Americans, particularly optimistic ones. Uh, But he noted in an addendum that of the top ten rules of success, according to African Americans uh, who graduated from Harvard Business School, uh, the tenth rule of success was to never talk about race or gender Mm -hmm. except to say, if you can avoid it, except to say that race or gender does not matter. So that's exactly the price of success uh, in a pre-post-assimilation America or in a post-racial America as we understood it in 2007 or 2008 or 2009. And so, of course, we're not going to be able to move the needle in a structural racism or institutionally racist context if the only thing that matters is how much individual effort people put into their own success. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference between then and now. Uh, Dr. Muhammad, um, speaking of uh, Mr. Obama's presidency and, and moving the needle, you wrote in your article that Mr. Obama has symbolized more than anyone in American history the idea that racial representation and the content of one's character were the perfect antidote to racism. So why is it that um, conservatives, uh, right-wingers, uh, Republicans, Tea Party, why would they reject the antidote to racism, except that they don't want that antidote. They want to continue racism. Yeah, now that is a question uh, that I haven't been asked, so I need a minute to. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. Um, You know, what you put your finger on is perhaps one of the most salient contradictions uh, that come from the right which is that, and it's and actually it's an old contradiction, the African-American tradition of being twice as good in this country um, has put the successful African-American women and men, whether in business or medicine or the professions, often in the crosshairs of white supremacists. One of the things that we, we actually don't do a good job teaching in our classrooms is that in the early days of Jim Crow, uh, just over a century ago, uh, the people who were often subjected to racial violence were people who were running successful businesses, Mm -hmm. uh, people who posed a threat by virtue of their hard work 
and ambition to uh, the dominance of, of, of white Southerners um, in those local communities. And we see today, uh, fast-forwarding from that period to our present, that uh, there's a kind of implicit understanding that there's only so much room for black excellence in America <laughs> until that black excellence uh, becomes part of a zero-sum zero game calculation uh, that white people are going to lose out. And I think President Obama represented that in uh, the most explicit way. The fear of President Obama's own excellence and singularity being a, a template for a new future where he could take his own biography and graft it onto the rest of black America became uh, the lightning rod for his so-called black agenda. But most black people recognized pretty early on that the president was a moderate and did not have an explicit black agenda uh, to make everyone in his own image. And therefore, that reveals, I think, to try to answer what you've asked, which is an outstanding question, it reveals that uh, conservative white Americans in this country have never actually fully meant what they've said. They've never actually really wanted black people right. uh, to become the incredibly successful, hardworking people who took seriously uh, the notion of individual responsibility as the best measure of what it means to be successful in America. Because if that were true, we would not have had the lynch mobs and the Ku Klux Klan uh, threatening and intimidating black people who wanted to do right by their families, who wanted to build uh, homes and, and own land so that they could uh, do for their own selves and their own communities what America professed were its core values. You know, you, you would think um, after a black man's ascension to the presidency, that would be enough of an example. Yeah, but of course it wasn't because now that uh, after President Obama, we see that a black man is uh, perceived as a threat at either end of the spectrum, whether or not you have a black man who's uh, um, on the fringes of society, uh, leading the criminal life to the black man uh, that embodied President Obama. Yeah, and this is, this is uh, again, another really smart observation. Uh, this is exactly the essence of what Black Lives Matter activists are calling us to account for, which is that you cannot be a human being. You cannot fully embody what it means to be a human being if you are either a child or a monster. And the child being the person who's incapable of self-governance, and the monster being a threat uh, to civil society. And so in that way, uh, the monstrous um, capacity of a black man as president to destroy white life as we know it has been very much the caricature drawn around President Obama since 2009. And the childlike incapacity of everyday black people to govern themselves, uh, to take care of their own community, to be treated with dignity and respect is precisely the kind of frontline issue that Black Lives Matter activists are organizing around in so many communities. And so, Dr. Mohammed, can I ask you then, uh, and I realize I'm asking from the perspective of somebody who's sensitive to um, the nuances of history, um, but 
So then what does, how do we, how do we make sense of the historical frame that informs these, um, the, the legacy, the stigma? And so then how do black and brown people, how do they come to terms with the historiography of race, especially in the Trump era then? So I will say as an assumption, and I'm not going to back this up because I actually don't think we polled this particular question, uh, but I'm going to make as an assumption that we are, as a nation, pretty historically uh, illiterate about how we actually came to be the nation that we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, some of us have a pretty good sense of the Founding Fathers' ideals embodied in our founding documents. and. Uh, we have some sense of the military histories that brought us uh, to the 20th century and the continuing uh, challenges in an international context and what it meant to uh, to make explicit America's core values around the globe. Um, but to answer your question, Roberta, at the end of the day, I think that Trump is made possible precisely by virtue of the systematic uneducation, uneducate. Uh, that's not quite the word I want, miseducation of Americans, um, both black and white, both Latino and Asian, uh, uh, both old immigrant and new immigrant. Mm -hmm. We do a pretty terrible job um, teaching social studies and the complicated, nuanced version of history that I do fundamentally believe as an educator could help to create a new culture of inclusiveness of respect for human dignity in this country if we wanted to. Mm -hmm. Because if we want to hide behind the comforts of a history that tells us that black people ought to be grateful Mm -hmm. that they came here, that immigrants from Asia or from Latin America or Africa ought to be grateful for the largesse of white America, then we're not changing anything that we haven't been saying uh, since the late 18th century. So, you know, the definition of insanity is essentially doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. Okay, well. That, that must have been your fault. moment. Justice? Okay. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. okay. We can edit that out. Yes, we can. <laughs> and it happened right after I said different outcome. So. He, he, he planned it that way. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to shift gears here for just a second. So I was reading one of, one of your other articles. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you advocate for reparations. Is that correct? I advocate for absolute truth and reconciliation. And if out of that reparations comes with cash payments, then I'm definitely 100% support. Okay, and you mentioned Georgetown University mm-hmm. in that article. So my question is, um, how exactly would you administer reparations? Because... Quite honestly, America cannot afford economic reparations. <laughs> right. So there's, there's a lot of debate about uh, what it could look like, and I am not the expert on, uh, one, what is uh, preferred and what is uh, politically feasible. I will venture to say that if we cannot come to terms with the need to invest in the communities most systemically harmed by government policies, not simply private actions, but state actions at the local, state, and federal level, um, then we're never going to get anywhere. Because the truth is, the government has been a key partner in 
transferring wealth to white communities, uh, by and large, and, and, and most explicitly, either through regulation or tax policies, and to a much lesser extent transferring wealth to Japanese Americans who receive some small cash payment in the context of uh, the Japanese internment period. So we have precedent both for essentially everyday government action uh, when wealth transfers occur uh, that creates wealth for other communities. The most uh, perhaps best example of that comes from the work of Ira Katz Nelson, whose work when affirmative action was white simply looked at uh, government policies that helped to create white working class income equality by virtue of giving them access to a free college education and access to cheaper housing. That, those are programs that essentially made America's middle class. Black people have been paying, playing catch-up because they were left out, by and large, of those very same programs through redlining in the right. real estate industry, as well as through having limited access to using those college GI fund bills because of segregation in the time period. So even if we accepted that sometime in the 70s or 80s with affirmative action and other government transfers, which have never been exclusively black, particularly around food stamps or aid to families of dependent children or with de dependent children, uh, the white population of impoverished Americans have always benefited from those same redistributive policies. So I think there is space to talk explicitly about the kind of infrastructure investment starting in the poorest, blackest, and browning communities in America to rebuild those schools, to rebuild uh, the public infrastructure of transportation, uh, of libraries. I live in a community right now uh, where some of the libraries are literally falling apart. And the tax base to rebuild those libraries, which tend to benefit uh, the lesser advantage in any community, because those are people who borrow things more so than buy them, uh, comes from philanthropy, uh, from wealthier people uh, spending their own private dollars. So we have explicit needs and explicit examples of what reparations could look like by zip code, the same zip codes that predict who's going to go to prison, the same zip codes uh, that predicts who's going to fail in school. So why don't we use the same zip codes uh, to target the kind of robust government investment in infrastructure in those communities? Wow, that was uh, a lot more than I expected, but thank you. Yeah, that's um, fascinating. I'd never really thought about the connection between right, reparations right. and philanthropy. Um, uh, I think that's putting the onus on um, foundations and organizations um, to help support the message, to help support the narrative. I think that's a long-standing history in our in the United States, something that we should all be very proud of. But it, we're kind of at a fever pitch right now, and it, can, and it has to go beyond just the Bill Gates <laughs> of the world. Well, you know, as it made me think of something. As long as government provides food stamps, low-income housing, welfare, Wal Walmart is not going to raise their wages. <laughs> so as long as philanthropists are providing uh, money for uh, libraries and, and, and other needs, and I think conservative politicians uh, are going to use that as an excuse to cut even more. That's right. Right, right. right. That's no, it's exactly true. right. It's true. And in fact, it, you know, there's a lot of 
work and a lot of people, and, and even Dr. King said this himself many, many uh, years ago. He said that philanthropy is no substitute for public policy. Agreed. So the Agreed. fact of the growth in philanthropy mm-hmm. to try to fill the void mm-hmm. uh, for the disadvantages of the least of these in our communities is actually a symptom of a terrible problem, a malignancy mm-hmm. right. um, in our commitment to each other. Mm-hmm. And I believe, again, you can have policies come and go administration to administration, four years or eight years or on the congressional cycle every two years. So sometimes you get it right, and sometimes the needle moves in the right direction. But we live in an open democracy, and therefore people can vote uh, themselves into a terrible fix. So part of what I'm trying to suggest with the importance of truth and reconciliation, which should precede reparations, or truth and reconciliation, which should be part of our civic culture, is that if we have a, if we have a more cohesive understanding of who we are, how we got here, and what we want for each other, then I think a lot of those policies will sustain themselves. They won't be subject to uh, the caprice and uh, political winds of this individual demagogue uh, or that individual. Hmm. Well, um, another question about a book review that you did, and I think Power and Punishment, two new books about race and crime. Mm -hmm. And... You asked a question in the book, and you actually—I mean—in your review, and you actually answered it. But I'm going to read the question, and I'd like you to go ahead and uh, and answer that uh, right now, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. When African American officials finally gained a measure of control over the machinery of the law, why did mass incarceration happen on their watch? In other words, why did they lock up their own? Sure. Uh, so the, uh, the the books are. Locking Up Our Own, uh, Crime and Punishment in Black America by James Foreman, Jr. He's uh-huh. the son of the former SNCC civil rights leader James Foreman. And the other book is by MSNBC's Chris Hayes called A Colony in a Nation. Uh, so, so these are Foreman's questions, really. And Foreman answers it in three, three ways. Uh, he says, first, that no one could see mass incarceration coming. It was a series of local uh, decisions, one person at a time, uh, and, and they just didn't see what they were doing when they were calling for mandatory minimum sentencing for uh, drug possession from marijuana to crack and heroin. The second thing he says is that uh, after the civil rights movement, as many of those black first, those municipal officials who, uh, like in Washington, D.C., for example, where much of this book is told, uh, the first black mayor took charge in 1975, uh, they decided that part of the legacy of the civil rights movement was being tough on crime. Uh, was holding black people accountable uh, to a, uh, a a legacy of being twice as good and and maintaining the respectability that the civil rights movement had insisted upon as it made moral claims for the nation. And so when uh, poor black people fell short of those ideals, uh, there was not a lot of compassion, uh, but there was a lot of incarceration. Uh, that's, that's the big reason, he argues. And then one uh, other reason, a third reason, is he says that uh, a lot of those African-American firsts who were able to integrate some of the most elite schools in this country and uh, to move into corporate boardrooms and, of course, to take positions of leadership in government, uh, they also began to express their own class biases. Uh, and so they, you know, they looked down upon poor people 
um, in the same way that all poor people in this country are looked down upon by all sorts of groups, both within those groups and between those groups. And so those class dimensions meant that as, as mass incarceration and policing became more aggressive, uh, the costs of, of abusive policing and the cost of incarceration didn't fall with equal weight on middle class and black elites. They weren't the ones being subjected as much to abusive policing, and they weren't the ones who were facing long jail sentences because if they were breaking the law, uh, they weren't as vulnerable to arrest and prosecution as the poor were. And so those are the three reasons, and I found them incredibly compelling in what is a really brilliant book by James Foreman, Jr. So last year, I think I remember people like John Boehner and uh, Mitch McConnell uh, Lindsey Graham from South Carolina speaking out against uh, the high rates of incarceration. So it, it seems like even conservative politicians were realizing the damage that's being done, and not just to uh, black America, but to the country as a whole. But now you have an AG, uh, Mr. Beauregard Sessions here, who wants to double down on mass incarceration. And... Uh, just, it seems like he just wants to do even more damage. Do you think that they're going to end up uh, in, in direct contradiction with each other, or do you think he's going to be able to advance his agenda or, or what? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, I, I, I don't think anybody knows exactly how the um, Republican elite within the party, particularly those in uh, the Senate, are going to line up behind certain uh, Trump promises, uh, and one of them was to restore law and order, uh, by which the major step in that direction was appointing uh, Jeff Sessions. So I can't say that I know, um, but I can say that uh, Jeff Sessions is swimming against the tide. And despite the electoral success of the Trump uh, candidacy, uh, there are... Uh, millions of white Americans um, uh, suffering themselves from high rates of criminality and drug use by virtue of the position, the economic position they find themselves in, not terribly different uh, than African Americans from the late 60s uh, into the 1990s. Uh, One thing we know, for example, uh, I'm uh, on the board of the Vera Institute of Justice in New York, and uh, they've done some recent uh, analyses, and one of the things that uh, is clear in their work is that the reddest counties in America that voted for Donald Trump are also the counties hit the hardest by the opioid crisis in this country. So there's not going to be a whole lot of tolerance for the kind of promises that Jeff Sessions is articulating and going back to a Reagan-era tough-on-drugs approach because uh, people in these communities, particularly within the law enforcement establishment as well as local officials, know that they can't arrest uh, their way out of this problem. So I think that uh, if I take those trends uh, in light, uh, it's not likely that Sessions will be able to realize uh, what for him is a kind of uh, old-school, uh, white, southern, homegrown approach um, as a man uh, with a record in Alabama. Uh, it's not going to apply, uh, particularly as uh, some of the strongest supporters for the Trump administration uh, white, rural, and working-class Americans would be most victimized by some of those policies. 
Dr. Mohammed, I think my perception of <clears throat> your academic work is to put you in the category of the great moral suasionist Frederick Douglass. <laughs> <laughs> because because um, I think that at the heart of your um, academic inquiry is um, justice for all, truly, um, human rights, justice for all, and the dignity of each man. And so I think that it's no mistake that you agree that, or at least you can find the pattern of thinking between Foreman and Hayes when they say that it's not just about policy change, but it's about the individual change of heart. I think that's consistent with your um, your core value as a as a critical academic, and I so I'm I'm drawing the line here. Then um, my colleague, Mr. Jose, has asked a really brilliant question. And I wanted to iterate it and make sure that it got some time with you. And uh, I want to ask you then, in that frame of Frederick Douglass, um, what are the similarities then between Dr. King, who is um, the man with a dream, um, the man who acknowledged that the, uh, the, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, and President Obama, who had the audacity to hope? What are these changes of heart that these great leaders, these great African-American men, these great um, um, people of faith, regardless of what their faith was, but people who believed in the transcendence of something called hope, what, what does that have to do with the moment that we find ourselves in, the context of the moment that we find ourselves in? Is there hope? Do we have hope? Yeah, so I, I think that, um, I think two things uh, to come to mind with the question. In some ways, Frederick Douglass was a, a far greater skeptic of the American project, um, in part because he lived long enough uh, and to see the tremendous transformation of the nation from a, a slave republic uh, to a modern uh, democracy uh, that could achieve a kind of multiracial democracy represented by uh, President Obama. But but he had an insight, having lived and borne witness to that transformation of the limits of this nation's moral capacity uh, to learn from its past. And indeed, in many ways, uh, it's Douglas that has been forgotten in the King and post-King era. Uh, because King, not only uh, did he call the nation to reconcile with its contradictions, uh, but like President Obama, and by contrast to Douglas, um, he really wanted the nation to live up to its, its highest ideals. Uh, its highest ideals. Uh, in other words, uh, Douglas was was more like uh, the tradition of uh, a prophetic preacher. Mm-hmm. Um, with a Jeremiah uh, calling the nation uh, to reconcile with her sins and shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Uh, King and Obama uh, have, been, um, have been social gospelers uh, that in, wanted to inspire the nation to achieve her highest ideals. And in some ways, I think uh, we've always had both traditions, and we will likely continue to see both traditions. But the moment in my opinion, demanded now, is a Jeremiah uh, moment. It may feel like we've had too much of that, mm. 
But if we don't get the social diagnosis right of what ails this nation, mm. uh, we could see uh, a short-lived Trump administration because he's got all kind of problems, <laughs> way beyond just what's going on in black America. Um, and we will not have learned the lessons that Douglas insisted we learn. Mm -hmm. And we will not have learned the lesson that Dr. King died trying to teach us in the last stages of his life. And we will not have learned the lesson that I think President Obama wanted us to hear uh, during his exit speech in Chicago when he said, finally, that there is systemic racism in America. <clears throat> so people are going to have to reach a little bit deeper. They're going to have to go into their hearts um, and ask themselves, are they really prepared to see the full humanity of black people? Because this is not any longer about laws and not simply about policies. If we can't see each other for, for being full human beings, if we can't even borrow the best of European traditions in the 20th century of, of opening their borders to people in desperate need, something that we seem not to want to do today, uh, then I'm not sure... Uh, that uh, either Douglas, nor King, nor Obama's best selves will have been realized. Well, Dr. Muhammad, one thing that we can always say about you is that you never disappoint. <laughs> okay. I had about 27 more questions that I wanted to ask, but it uh, doesn't look like that's going to happen. So I want to go ahead and give you the last couple of minutes to say anything that you want to, to the many uh, friends, mentees, and just regular old fans that you have here in Bloomington, Indiana. Sure. Well, I, I want to say that uh, uh, WFHB and, and uh, Bring It On are, are really where my uh, public uh, engagement career began, uh, the chance to, uh, to talk to everyday folk um, from the radio waves to the uh, pulpit of Bethel AME uh, right there on, on Roger Street. And uh, I'll be forever grateful uh, to this community for taking, taking a chance on me. And I'll always be a fierce advocate for the people there and the community that nurtured me. So uh, thank you so much for having me back on the show. Thank you. Thank you. You have a great day, sir. It's a pleasure speaking with you, as always. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Our thanks to Bring It On correspondents William Hosea, Roberta Radovich, and former Bring It On Politics 101 correspondent Khalil Gibran Muhammad, professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard Kennedy School, and the Suzanne Young Murray Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies, for joining us tonight for a rich discussion on the broad intersections of race, democracy, inequality, and criminal justice in modern U.S. history. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. This is Khalil Muhammad on the promise and peril of post-racial America in the age of Obama. In most American communities, the fact that African Americans are steadily becoming better able to pay for privileges are their best guarantee of possessing these privileges. Restaurants and theaters, for instance, find that a black man's money goes as far as a white man's profits. A cab driver deems it wiser to pick up a fare from an African-American than to let his vehicle stand idle. Stores of all kinds, even the most select, see no good reason for declining to sell to black people.
banks draw no color line in accepting deposits, and black people can live anywhere they choose. These statements were written by John Daniels, a white New England liberal social reformer more than a century ago, during what many took to be a new era of post-racialism, when racism many claimed then no longer determined whether black people succeeded or failed. Daniels uttered these optimistic words in 1914, 50 years before Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yet, in 1914, 51 lynchings were officially recorded, a number that grew year by year, reaching 76 five years later in 1919. That year marked another milestone in Daniels's post-racial America. 22 race riots happened where whites attacked entire black communities, taking countless lives. Then, in 1921, an entire black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the black Wall Street of the country, was genocidally destroyed. The long shadow of Jim Crow was indeed creeping across the United States just when Daniels declared America a colorblind post-racial society. There is a powerful cautionary tale in remembering the words of John Daniels and so many others. Over the years following the end of slavery and the passage of the civil rights laws of that era, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, most white Americans, even the most learned, and many who called themselves liberals or progressives, believed then that racism was declining in American society. What better proof they often claimed than the election of more than a dozen African Americans to the highest offices in the land. From the 1870s through the turn of the 20th century, 14 black men served in the U.S. House of Representatives and two black men served in the U.S. Senate. Undeniably, these were heady times, a moment for great optimism. But it took 125 years after Reconstruction with the 2004 election of Senator Barack Obama to elect three additional black senators. Reconstruction ended in 1877 when the nation's political winds changed directions. White Democrats took back the South with violence and subterfuge. By 1880, there were no more black senators. By 1896, segregation was legalized by Plessy versus Ferguson. And by 1901, there were no black congressmen. The grand experiment in racial democracy had come to a precipitous end. It would take much of the rest of the 20th century to return race relations to the status quo of the late 19th century. Every generation of Americans since Reconstruction and Daniels's day, including our own moment, have wanted to believe in the country's greatness and goodness and its fairness. Its willingness, this country, to transcend the past, even to escape it, or, as candidate Obama put it, to become a more perfect union, starting from perfect, he insisted over and over again. Yes, we can do better. But the myth of American exceptionalism, of a divine mission to always triumph over evil, has been as much a cause of persistent racism and racial inequality than residential segregation, 
bank redlining, discrimination in public education, and yes, even among taxicabs. American exceptionalism has left us more wanting to believe in the end of racism rather than to making real the promise of racial equality. John Daniels, a good guy in his day, was wrong about 1914 and about the future of race relations to come. In the age of President Obama, history may repeat itself in the expectation that the nation can only move forward, can only progress. Remember, the black women, men, and children of segregation's early years who witnessed lynchings firsthand and lived to hear Billie Holiday's strange fruit have left us a cautionary tale that we ignore at our own peril. Soon we will celebrate proudly the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. for his courage and sacrifice, but there should never have been a need for a life such as his. The future is not guaranteed, and we would be wise to pay close attention to the countervailing winds of racism and optimism swirling all around us. This is Khalil Muhammad for Politics 101. You just heard Billie Holiday's rendition of the haunting song, Strange Fruit. This song accompanied by the 2000, November 23rd, 2009 debut of Khalil Muhammad's Politics 101 segment, focusing on your political enrichment and empowerment. 
To keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes of WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB, or you can always visit the WFHB News website at WFHB.org news. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community. Here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. It's now time to bring you the events of interest in the black community for Bring It On. I'm Leela Randall. And I'm Cornelius Wright. What do we have up first? All righty. The African-American Choral Ensemble Spring Concert is April 29th at 8 p.m. at the Buzzkirk Chumley Theater. And that's at 114 East Kirkwood Avenue. And for ticket information, call area code 812-323-3020. And patrons who are purchasing a student ticket will need to show their student IDs at the door. And next up, the Second Baptist Church of Bloomington is engaged in the West Baden Church Project. And that was formerly founded and built by the early black settlers and they are redoing the church. And to learn more information about uh, how you can help this project, um, go to act.usatoday.com and find the West Baden Church Renewal Project and consider voting for the project. You can vote every day, so tell all your friends and family to vote for this project. There's a $75,000 grant and a $100,000 grant, and um, if we get enough votes, Second Baptist Church can win that to to, uh, refurbish the West Baden Church. Okay. On May 10th, 2017, at 5.30 p.m., the Commission on the Status of Black Males Monthly Meeting is located at the Hooker Conference Room at City Hall at 401 North Morton Street. Contact is Rafi Hassan. His number is 812-349-3559. Or you can email him at Hassan R, which is H-A-S-A-N-R, at bloomington.in.gov. The Bloomington Commission on the Status of Black Males, which is the CSMB, was established in 2000 for the purpose and duties which include to develop action committees addressing problems of black males in the areas of education, justice, and employment, to serve as a catalyst to promote positive public and private remedies to the multifaceted black males in our community and the resulting effects on the entire community, to organize and convene community forums and neighborhood-based focus groups to discuss males and to network with groups with similar missions such as the Indiana Commission on Society Males, the African American National Council, and the local commissions throughout the state. Information, data, and plans. Last but not least, there's going to be an evening of jazz, a red, a red and white soirway, soirway, Say that for me. Soiree. Soiree. Um, This is the Bloomington, Bloomington Alumni Chapter of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority. It will be Friday, April 28th. Um, so that's this Friday. The time will be from 8 p.m. to 12 a.m. And it's going to be held at the Serendipity Martini Bar, which is located here in Bloomington. Tickets are $20 if you find a Delta or $25 at the door. So there's going to be door prizes, hors d'oeuvres, and a cash Sounds like a great evening. Yeah, I'm wearing my red. All your right. White? What you wearing? Well, if I come here, I've got a white tux jacket and okay. a white He's tux shirt white. and red sports, we'll uh, come, red we'll bow tie. Together. So we'll so, be the red and white. Absolutely. Well, that's the colors <laughs> of the evening. Absolutely. So if you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard tonight, contact us at 
WFHB.org. Our thanks to our newest Bring It On team member, Roberta Radovich, and the former Bring It On Politics 101 correspondent, Khalil Gabriel. Gibran Muhammad, Professor of History, Race, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and the Suzanne Young Murray Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies for joining us tonight for a rich discussion on the broad intersections of race, democracy, inequality, and criminal justice in modern U.S. history. Our show's award-winning executive producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director Joe Crawford. Our board engineer team consists of Jim Thrasher and Floyd Hobson, the award-winning Jim Thrasher and Floyd Hobson. Our original theme music was created by Jamel Effium with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Cornelius Wright. And I'm Leela Randall. Be sure to tune in next Monday, May 1st at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.